Last week, Alice was here and shared with us how the Sermon on the Mount begins with a blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the poor in spirit are blessed because they know that they need God's grace. God's grace is the only fuel powerful enough to get us through the race, to follow Jesus and to live for Him. So that's how the Sermon on the Mount begins. It begins with blessing. This morning we're going to look at how it ends. It ends with a warning. In my opinion, this is one of the most challenging, one of the most difficult things that Jesus ever said. What makes it so hard is that it is flat out scary. It's it's a haunting verse. Because what Jesus says is this. There are going to be many people on Judgment Day who call Him Lord and have done things for Him and in His name in the course of their lives, but they are not going to go to heaven when they die. So let me read this to you. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Many people will call him Lord, do things in his name, and Jesus will look at them and he will say, I never knew you. I want to tell you a story that illustrates what Jesus is talking about when he says, I never knew you. I want to tell you about how I met my wife, Deb. My first vivid memory of noticing Deb was my junior year at Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa, the home of the other Tulip Festival. Uh, It was 1978. First day of classes, and I did what any red-blooded American male did on the very first day of classes. I looked to see if there were any good-looking girls in the room. I don't even remember what the class was about, honestly. But I remember seeing Deb Brummer. Deb was a senior. What I remember noticing was how tan Deb was. I know now that she spent her summer lifeguarding. Her hair was wet and it was pulled up in a side braid. And I remember thinking how beautiful she looked. She looked fine. I don't, I don't know what the appropriate word is uh, that millennials use today, but, but Deb looked fine. And she still does. Now, at that time in my life, I was just beginning to understand faith in Jesus Christ for myself. Uh, my desire to follow Jesus was taking roots in my life. So being a young Christian man that I was, I knew it was important not to look too much at pretty girls because that could lead to lust. So what I did was this. I took a chance and I just sat right behind Deb. Now, I was dating another girl at the time. But come on, I was 19. (laughs) Several weeks into that semester, this girl broke up with me and I was heartbroken Uh, She was great. She loved Jesus. Uh, But she came to me one day and she said, God told me to break up with you. Now, that's a little hard to argue with. 
Some of you girls are taking notes. You're thinking, I'm going to use that one. Um, but I couldn't really argue with her. And it broke my heart. So that night in my dorm room, I had this conversation with God. I said, God, that's it. I'm done with dating. I'm done with girls from now on. It's just going to be you and me. I'm tired of getting hurt. I don't need girls. I'm just going to follow you for the rest of my life. That's it. I'm good. Amen. And actually, for the next couple of years, that's more or less the path that I walked. I mean, there were some other girls that I I spent some time with, but I really kind of tried to keep a distance. I didn't want to get hurt again. I tried to build up my faith. And that worked until I saw Deb again. Both of us were now college grads, and we were working in the same office on campus. As a matter of fact, I remember that I had just been reconvinced that the girls and dating were a distraction. And I had recommitted myself to avoiding both and renewed my pledge to God. Then I walked into the office and there she was. Still looking fine. And we immediately began talking. And I began to learn some things about her, some facts about her life, about her family, where, where she grew up, uh, what her major had been, what she had been doing since she had graduated. And that's how it began. But at that point, even though I was learning things about her, I was not in a relationship with her. And as the days and the weeks went by, it wasn't just the facts. I began to know her as a person. I began to enter a relationship with this girl. I spent time with her. I learned about her hopes and about her dreams, about her fears, about about what made her up as a person. And as this relationship progressed, I began to know more about her. And eventually, our relationship grew into a lifelong commitment. This was the girl I married. And we'll be married 34 years this week. And we've gone some through some... Thank you. Thank you, Deb. Uh, we've gone through some incredible things together. Uh, some unbelievable highs and lows. Uh, we've had two amazing kids and we've raised them together. Uh, we've walked through sickness and through tragedy. We've lived in six communities in three different states. And together we've fought thousands of times, uh, but we've laughed millions of times. And here's the thing. Every day together, our relationship deepens and grows. There's not a single person on this planet who knows me like Deb Tenson does. And there's not a single person on earth who knows her like I do. I look back at our three and a half decades together and there's such a a monumental distance and difference between the day when I knew just the facts about her life and today where I deeply know this woman and have this relationship with her that has lasted a really long time. One of my greatest fears for you, the church, especially those of you who have grown up in the church, is that you may know a lot about Jesus. You may know a lot about his life. But at the end of the day, do you really know him? My fear for many of us is that you know all uh, uh, know a lot of the facts about what he did, but there's never been a point in time when you began to to bridge that gap 
and enter into a relationship with him that results in this deep knowing. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. There's an eternal difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. And the top context here is Judgment Day. It's, it's a future thing that Jesus is talking about. A real event. Something that is going to happen. So understand, you are in this scene that Jesus is talking about. So in Matthew 20, uh, 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What a haunting verse. There are going to be people who call Jesus Lord, but they aren't going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So if that's true, then who's going to go to heaven? Well, he tells us, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's not necessarily the person who says that Jesus is Lord that goes to heaven. Jesus says that it's the person whose life reflects that Jesus is Lord that goes to heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 21 gets even more tragic. Many will say to me on that day, and, and that's crazy. I mean, you'd think that maybe only a few people who would call Jesus Lord wouldn't go to heaven because their life didn't reflect it. But Jesus says, no, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And then watch what he says next. They'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And that's a scary verse. Jesus is saying that there are people who will call him Lord and then they'll actually be doing stuff, Christian stuff for God. And they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of the modern equivalent of saying, God, didn't I go to church? I was in a Christian small group. I went on a mission trip. I served others. Lord, I gave money to the church. I went to this amazing Christian conference. I did all of that in your name. And then Jesus continues in verse 23. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Scariest verse in the Bible. People call him Lord. They do things in his name. And they won't go to heaven. And he says, here's why. Because I don't know you. In other words, you did all that stuff. But I was never in a relationship with you. There's an eternal difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. I want to tell you a story about how that can happen. It's a story about Nolan Ryan. Do you know who Nolan Ryan is? A few of you? The rest of you are too young? Uh, I'll confess, I'm, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but there's some things that I know. There's some names and players that I'm familiar with, and Nolan Ryan is one of them. Nolan Ryan is one of the greatest baseball pitchers in history. He played professionally professionally until he was 
46 years old. That is old. And he was one of the greatest pitchers in history. Most no-hitters in history. Most strikeouts. Now, I was listening to somebody talk about Nolan Ryan a while back, and, and this guy was a, a fan, a fan of both the game and, and of Ryan, a huge fan. And he described how his adoration of Nolan Ryan went to a new level on August 4, 1993. Are there any big baseball fans in this room that know what happened on that date? Any, any, this, what, no, be quiet. Uh, all right, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. Maybe there's a couple of old duffers in the room that are, are just, they're nodding. Um, what happened is uh, this was the day that Nolan Ryan got in a fist fight on the pitcher's mound with Robin Ventura. And when this happened, Robin Ventura was 26 years old and Nolan Ryan was 46. It was his last season. Ryan was pitching. Ventura was some up-and-coming young uh, guy, three-time Golden Glove winner, played for the White Sox. Ryan was pitching to him. He throws the ball, and he hits 26-year-old Robin Ventura. Now, for those of you like me who may not follow baseball much, when a pitch hits you, you have two options. One is that you can toss your bat down and you can walk to first base. You get a, you get a free base. Good deal. The other option is you can toss your bat down and you can charge the pitcher and go fight him. Now, it's not a smart option. It, it is not an option that I would approve of, but it's an option that many players choose. Now, if you are Robin Ventura and you are 26 years old, and you're batting against future first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, 46-year-old Nolan Ryan, and he hits you with a pitch, what are you going to do? Let me tell you what I'd do. If I got hit by a Nolan Ryan, I would carefully lay my bat down, I would pick up the baseball, and I would politely ask Ryan to sign it after the game. That's, that's what I would do. But but that's not what Nolan Ryan or that's not what Ventura did. Uh, and this this Nolan Ryan fan, he was telling the story, and he said he remembered watching this happen live on TV. Now Ventura chooses option number two. He tosses the bat and he charges the mound. Now the second before Ventura reaches the pitcher's mound, what's going through everybody's mind? Oh my goodness. 26-year-old Ventura is going to flatten the old guy. When you're 46 years old, I mean, stuff is starting to fall apart. Uh, you're going downhill. And, and when you're 26, you're at the height of your physical prowess. And, and uh, 26 is awesome. But then everything starts going downhill from there. And, and 46 is a long ways down the hill. So 26-year-old, height of his career, height of his physical ability, Robin Ventura charges the mound on the old guy, the 46-year-old guy. And you think Ventura is going to flatten Ryan. So here's what happened. Ventura gets there and he takes a swing at Ryan. And Ryan just kind of steps back. 46-year-old Nolan Ryan just kind of steps back. And Ventura whiffs. 
And then Ryan reaches out calmly and grabs him in a headlock. And then just starts beating the dog out of him. Just bam, bam, bam. Here, I got a picture of it. Here it is. Now, some of you know my son, Elliot. He's our uh, senior high ministry leader here. He's 27. I told him, you ever charge me, that's what I'm going to do right there. If I can catch you, I'm going to whip your tail. So the guy telling the story said, after August 4, 1993, his admiration of Nolan Ryan skyrocketed. Let's take that off off a picture off of there. Uh, He learned everything that he could about Ryan. Um, When he was pitching, his his, uh, strikeouts that he threw, his wins, he could even tell you the name of his kids, where he went deer hunting. He knew all this stuff about Nolan Ryan. He was a Nolan Ryan expert. And then a couple years later, he said, he was at a formal function down in Texas. And he was standing in the buffet line. And he was reaching for some cauliflower. I don't know why he wasn't using the tongs. But he was reaching for some cauliflower. And then this other hand came in. This really big hand. And he looked up. And there was Nolan Ryan standing next to him, his childhood hero, face to face. And you would think he would have something brilliant to say. Well, here's what he said. After standing there for a second, staring at Nolan Ryan, the super fan said, you're Nolan Ryan. And Nolan Ryan said, yes, I am. And and after that brilliant exchange, uh, you'd think he'd recover and have something impressive to say next. But all he said was, Thank you. And that was it. That was it. Uh, That's all he had. But he went on to say that it struck him soon afterwards that even though he knew everything that there was to know about Nolan Ryan, the thing that hit him like a ton of bricks was that when he met him face to face, in that moment he realized he didn't know him at all. And Nolan Ryan didn't know him. It's entirely possible for you to know all about someone and not to know them. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there is this, this eternal chasm, an eternal distance between knowing about someone and knowing someone. And I believe that there are many of you in this room right now You could walk up on this stage right now. You could tell me all kinds of things about Jesus. You could tell me where he was born, where he grew up. You could tell me his parents' names, how old he was when he died, the miracles. He performed all kinds of stuff that he said. You could tell me all about the facts of Jesus' life. But the question I want you to get to the bottom of today is that even though you may know all that stuff about him, are you in a relationship with him? Even though you know all those things about him, if Jesus were to walk into this room and he would walk right up to you right now, 
and you met him face to face, would you know him? And would he know you? Now, I know what's going on right now. Some of you are thinking, oh my gosh, that could be me. You're thinking, I grew up in church. I can tell you a lot about Jesus. But I, I don't know. I don't know if I've taken that that eternal step and, and entered into a relationship with, with Him. How can I be sure? The way that you enter into a relationship with Jesus is not by saying, okay, I'm going to go know Him better. The way the Bible says, the way that the Sermon on the Mount says, the way that Jesus says that you enter into a relationship with Him is through faith. It is by grace, through faith, that you are saved. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. And say, I prophesied in your name. I performed all kinds of miracles. I cast out demons. No, not by works. It is by grace that you have been saved. And what that means is that because we are broken sinners and have fallen short of God's glory and our sin separates us from a relationship with the Creator, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He didn't sin. He offered Himself then as a sacrifice on the cross so that when His blood was shed, it made payment for our sin. And then three days later, he rose. He rose from the grave. He conquered death. And if we put our faith in that, if we trust in Jesus' gracious work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, then the Bible says we are saved. We have entered into a relationship with God. And if that has happened in your life, it's like your wedding day. It's like the day 34 years ago that Deb and I got married. And the rest of your life with Him is this growing, deepening knowing and love of one another. The one who graciously made it possible for you to know Him. And so, on that day, when you see Him face to face, and everyone in this room will, then in that moment, it's not going to be an introduction. It's going to be a reunion. It's going to be a reunion with your best friend and the love of your life.
and you're not going to hear those words. I never knew, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Instead, you're going to hear the words. Enter into the inheritance prepared for you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your powerful, convicting words. And I just imagine that there are some in this room right now that are a bit shook up by these words as I have been over these last weeks. They're frightening. They're scary. And they force us to consider our lives. To consider what it is that we're building our life on. And what we are placing our hope in. Is it in ourselves? And what we're accomplishing? Our good works? Or is it, is it in you? and what you have done for us. So what matters is not who we are. What matters is who you are and whose we are. So Father, I I just pray in every way that your Spirit would convict us right where we need to be convicted this morning to take a step, maybe take that eternal step and say, Jesus, I want to have that kind of faith in you. I want to trust in you done everything that needs to be done so that I can be assured of eternity and I can begin living now with that that, that assuredness or if we've been on this journey already but just to continue in confidence and say God thank you thank you for making the way possible for me for us thank you for adopting me into your family just because you love me and help me to serve you more and more every day God I pray for this church this church family may we be obedient may we be faithful but may we also be gracious recipients of your love grateful recipients of your grace Help us over these next weeks this summer to continue to listen to these very strong, challenging words from the greatest sermon ever given. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.